On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. When a person is born again, uh, at the very moment of salvation, they're justified, which means that God declares the believing sinner to be freed from the guilt of his sin and made right before God. And justification is a one-time legal action by God. And so as believers, we are as justified at the beginning of our Christian life as we will ever be. You cannot be more justified than you already are. However, our faith, through which we are saved, is also one that grows. And in his second letter, uh, Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the first part of that verse, he said, but grow in the grace, and then he said, and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter, Scripture, commands Christians to know Jesus and to grow in our knowledge of him. And this means knowing more about Jesus, but also, and more importantly, knowing Jesus in a personal relationship. Because it's one thing to know about Jesus, but it is another thing entirely to know him and to know him personally, intimately, and deeply. But I think that Peter undoubtedly means both. We're to grow in our knowledge about Jesus, I mean, we need to remind ourselves again and again of, of the basic truths about Jesus and, and what glorious truths they are. Truths about his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his death upon a cross, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, his ruling at the right hand of God. We must be constantly reminding ourselves of the doctrines and truths that are contained in the scriptures because every truth in the Bible is related in some way or form to the Lord Jesus. And so we should be contemplating his person and his work. We should think of him in, in his three states, pre-existent, incarnate, and glorified at God's right hand. We should think of him in terms of the threefold nature of his offices, as prophet to teach us, priest to forgive us, and king to rule over us. But Jesus is not just a subject to be studied. He is also a person to be known. And so it's not just having an increasingly clear and accurate understanding of who Jesus is and, and all that he has done, but also this knowledge then must lead us more and more into a deeper personal relationship with him. If you're a believer, I mean, you know Jesus because by grace through faith you have a personal relationship with him. But we must cultivate that relationship and, and grow in it. 
I mean, we should never stop growing in our relationship with, with Him until He takes us home, and then we're going to spend all eternity learning about Him. You know, what Peter is urging is that we know Christ more deeply, more, more intimately. And look, you can't grow in your love for someone until you come to know that person, you know, what they're, what they're like, their taste, their dislike, their interest, and, and their characteristics. The relationship or the, the union established between a man and a woman on their wedding day must be nurtured and, and deepened throughout their entire life together so that, that there's an ever-deepening knowledge of one another. Well, the same thing is true in, in the Christian spiritual union with Jesus Christ. A, a relationship exists. But as with all relationships, it needs to grow and mature. And you see, the thing of it is, the beauty of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus is that there is always more to learn about Him. And so if you think in your few short years you have exhausted all there is to know about Jesus, you are mistaken. There is always more to learn about Him. And there is always room for, for more growth and depth in our communion with Him as, as we come to know Him on a deeper and deeper level and come to a fuller knowledge of His mind and His will so that we come more and more to think His thoughts after Him and, and to perform His will in submission to Him. And we should be growing in our knowledge of Jesus personally and cultivating an ever deepening relationship with Him. And why is that? You know, for what purpose? So that we will love Him more and more. And that's our whole purpose for existence. Jesus said, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, we're to love the Lord our God with our entire being. That includes the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Our entire being. And to love the Lord our God also involves loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know if you're a true believer, you have a love for Jesus. But do you love Him with your entire being? I mean, is your love for Him evident in every area of your life? Because Jesus said, if we love Him, we will what? Keep His commandments. In other words, our love for Jesus is manifested by our obedience to Him, His Word, and His will. And I know that that those of you who are believers love Him. But how much do you love Him? How much do you love Him? I mean, do you desire to love Him more? Because we're, we are to love Him more and more and more and more. And we can only love Him more by knowing Him more in a deeper and more intimate way. And I want us all to know Jesus better so we'll love Him more than we already do. 
We should never be content with where we're at in our, our walk or our relationship with the Lord. Never. And I want us all to love him, to know Jesus better and to love him more. Why? Well, uh, because that's the most important thing in the world. There's nothing else that matters. You can accomplish, uh, you know, many, many great things in this world. But at the end of your life, if you don't know and love the Lord Jesus, what good is it? What does it profit a man or a woman to, to gain the whole world and lose their soul. I want us all to love him more. And that's why we've taken a break from Ephesians to do this series. Who is Jesus? And we're doing this so that we can look once again at some of the great and important passages about Jesus so that we can get a fresh glimpse of the person of Christ and, and the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ, which hopefully and prayerfully will give us greater reason to love him more. And so I pray that, that we approach this study with, with humble, teachable, wide-open hearts, longing to know Jesus and, and to love him even more, to love even more the one who first loved us. And so who is Jesus? Well, we began our series in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and and there John told us that Jesus is the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of all that exists, the life and the light that shines in the darkness, the, the true light which gives light to everyone. But he was in the world, the world didn't know him, his own people didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And not only did he tell us that Jesus is the eternal word, but he also told us that Jesus is the incarnate word. The word who became flesh, full of grace and truth. That he's greater than all the prophets. That Jesus provides abundant grace, grace upon grace for all who believe in him. That he's the one through whom grace and truth have come. And that Jesus has made God known. He is God's ultimate revelation of himself to us. That's what John said about Jesus in just the first 18 Verses of chapter 1. But what did others of that day say about Jesus? What did they have to say about him? Well, Jesus' enemies, the Jews, had some things to say about our Lord. And that, that expression, the Jews, uh, is, is an expression that's used 68 times in the Greek text of the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's used in a neutral way, or sometimes it's used in a positive sense, but most of the time, most often, it is used to refer to hostile Jewish opponents of Jesus among the Jewish leaders and the ordinary people who followed those leaders. So what did the Jews, what did Jesus' enemies say about Jesus? Well, they said things like, his testimony uh, is not true. That was in John 8.13, John 8.48, that, that he was a Samaritan. And in those days, to say you're, someone was a Samaritan was an extremely derogatory remark. Because the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. They hated the Samaritans. So, I mean, that was a low blow to call someone a Samaritan. So they said that Jesus was a Samaritan and that he had a demon. Some of the Pharisees said that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. One day they said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality, 
we have one Father, even God. In other words, implying that Jesus was an illegitimate child. Many of them said Jesus had a demon and, and is insane. Why listen to him? Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. In John 10, the Jews were going to stone Jesus for blasphemy because they said he, being a man, made himself God. So that was the enemies of Jesus. The Jewish people themselves also had things to say about the identity of Jesus. After Jesus miraculously fed the multitude in John chapter 6, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. After he raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead, uh, we read that fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. When Jesus went up to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem in John chapter 7, uh, we're told there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, he's leading people astray. And in the middle of the, the feast, again in response to Jesus' teaching in the temple, the crowd said, that, said to Jesus, you have a demon. And then on the last day of the feast, in response to Jesus' teaching, when they, when they heard his words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? In Matthew 20, as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem for the last time, there were two blind men sitting by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. It was a title for the Messiah. Lord, Messiah, have mercy on us. And then, of course, during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, or Hosanna to the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In other words, they're saying, uh, Messiah, save now. And then when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, and they were saying, who is this? And now, after all the emotion had, had, had settled down, the best the crowds could say was, this is the prophet, Jesus, from, from Nazareth of Galilee. Whether it was the Jewish leaders or the Jewish people, for the most part, they rejected Jesus because he was not the Messiah that they had imagined that he would be, nor was he the Messiah they wanted. Well, the people were willing to follow him to see the miracles and receive free food. And in other words, they wanted Jesus for the benefits and the blessings they could receive, but they didn't want to submit their lives to him as Lord and Savior. They had no real love for him. And doesn't that sound like multitudes today? They want the benefits and the blessings, but they don't really want Jesus because they don't love him. And they don't love him because they don't have a new heart. And when the crowds came to understand what it really was to follow Jesus, what did they do? You remember in John 6? They all left. They all left. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And Jesus didn't measure up to the expectations of, of the Messiah they had imagined in their own minds. They, they were ignorant of, of who Jesus truly was and is. And loved ones, look, I mean, we all know that there are many things that uh, we cannot afford in this world, right? I mean, there's just a lot of things that are just 
so expensive, they're, they're out of our reach. We, there's just many things that we cannot afford in this world. But there is only one eternally significant thing that we cannot afford, and that is to remain ignorant of who Jesus is. Ignorant of who our glorious Savior truly is. We must know Jesus, the Son of the living God. Well, that's what the enemies and the, and the uh, Jewish people had to say about Jesus. But the demons also spoke of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, demons said to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 3, We're told that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Even the demons admitted and proclaimed uh, what the scribes and the Pharisees would not. In Mark 5, verse 7, crying with a loud voice, the demon said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So that's what the demons had to say about Jesus. Jesus' family who during his ministry didn't believe in him, what did they say about him? Well, they went out to try to seize him because they said he's out of his mind. Oh, this is our crazy brother. He's he's out of his mind. But there were non-Jewish people who also had things to say about Jesus, the Samaritan woman at the well. And she said to her friends and the fellow villagers, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then later, in response to Jesus' teaching, the Samaritan people from her village said, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So even the despised Samaritans recognized who Jesus was, and, and many of them believed in him. But there were more non-Jewish people who had some things to say about Jesus. When Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, we're told in Matthew 15, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, or O Lord, Messiah. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And they had a conversation, and then a few verses later, she came and knelt down before Jesus, saying, Lord, help me. When Jesus dismissed his spirit and died on the cross, the Roman centurion who stood facing him saw that that in this way he breathed his last. And what did the Roman centurion say? Truly, this man was the Son of God. And then there was John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. He saw Jesus coming toward him one day, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then what did Jesus' twelve disciples and his followers say about him? Well, in John 6, when the multitude following him for the food and the miracles found out uh, what it really was to follow Jesus, and they all left. I mean, literally, they all left to the point that Jesus then said to the, the 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
And then there was Martha, the sister of Mary and, and Lazarus. She said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. After Jesus came walking on the water to the boat the disciples were in during a storm on the Sea of Galilee, we're told that, that those in the boat uh, worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And then in Matthew 16, when Jesus and disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And again, Simon Peter replied for the group, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas, who wasn't present earlier when the Lord appeared, Thomas said to Jesus, declared, my Lord and my God. So these are things that people said about Jesus, from the Jews, his enemies, to the Jewish people, to the demons, to John the Baptist, to the disciples and non-Jewish people. And elsewhere in Scripture, uh, Jesus is called teacher, servant, son of man, deliverer, the head of the body of the church, the beginning, high priest, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the living one and the bright and morning star. So when we talk about knowing Jesus, we're, all these names that I just read, we're talking about knowing him uh, in all those ways. What does that mean? There's so much more to knowing Jesus. So these are things that people said about Jesus, but uh, the question I'm going to address this morning is, what did Jesus say about himself? Who did Jesus say that he was? Well, turn in your Bibles to John 4. We're going to be moving around through the, the Gospel of John this morning. In John chapter 4, you know the story. Jesus went to the well there at, at Sychar, Jacob's well, and a Samaritan woman was there. He asked for a drink, and this sparked a conversation about living water and eternal life. And, uh, and this led to, uh, uh, you know, more discussion uh, Discussion about worship and worshiping in, in spirit and truth. And uh, the, the woman at the well didn't comprehend what the Lord was telling her. And so she said to him in John 4, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she was confused about what Jesus had just said. But she made the connection between his words about worshiping in spirit and truth and the promised Messiah. And so she realizes that somehow, when the Messiah comes, he will clear these things up. He's going to reveal the truth about how men must worship God. And then Jesus said something that would absolutely have stunned her in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, Jesus said, I who speak to you am. There's no he in the original. 
It's an I am statement. And of course, I am is the name of God. Jesus said, I who speak to you am. In other words, I am. God is speaking to you. In other words, Yahweh is the one who is speaking to you. He declared to her the startling truth that he was the Messiah that she had been looking for and that he was also God himself. And Jesus' habit was to avoid making declaration like this declarations like this to his own people, the Jews, because they had such wrong views regarding the Messiah. But here, he directly revealed himself to this outcast Samaritan woman more specifically than he had to any other person up to this point. So what did Jesus say about himself here? He basically said, I am the one that the Old Testament scriptures speak of and prophesy. I am the fulfillment of all those hopes and dreams. I am the fulfillment of all those prophecies. I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah. It doesn't get more clear than that. And so what happened? Well, we're told the woman left her water jar, went away into the town, and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And that's when Jesus looked upon him and said, the fields are, are ripe for harvest. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. So what did Jesus say about himself? Well, in John chapter 4, he said, I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm God. Now turn over to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus uh, was having a conversation with hostile Jewish leaders in which they claimed to be Abraham's children, and it continued. Uh, you know, it was an adversarial conversation, obviously, and it continued until at one point Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, when Jesus said, your father Abraham, he was referring to Abraham as their physical ancestor, not their spiritual father. And so he said, Abraham, the one you call your father, he rejoiced that he would see my day. And of course, the point is, if you guys were really children of Abraham, you'd rejoice in me too. You'd be rejoicing in what you see in my ministry. Because your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Well, what, what day is he referring to? The day that God had promised from the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. The day when he would send a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. The day when he would raise up from the seed of Abraham, one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham that through his family he would bring salvation and blessing to the world. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham believed that. He believed that through him would come the Redeemer, the Savior. And so Jesus says to the Jews, Abraham, look forward to see my day, the day God promised that he would raise up a deliverer. And Abraham looked forward to God's promise being fulfilled. He saw my day and he was glad. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of Abraham's hopes for salvation. My day is the day. I am the salvation.
And so what he's saying is, why would you want to scorn what Abraham and the prophets saw with joy? I'm here. I'm here. I'm Abraham's joy. Why don't you want to enter into Abraham's joy? Well, they couldn't believe their ears. And so in verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, they were not suggesting that Jesus looked like he was 50. Rather, they were just picking a round number that obviously was older than Jesus, who was in his mid-30s, and asking, how can a man who isn't even yet 50 claim to have seen a man who lived 2,000 years ago? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think? Are you, I mean, are you kidding? You knew Abraham? You never met Abraham. You're not yet 50 years old. And they're just mocking Jesus to scorn. And they certainly were not prepared for the answer they were about to receive. In verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, whenever you see that, truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending upon your translation, you know that what follows is of absolute extreme importance. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So here again, I am, the Old, Old Testament covenant name of God. It's, it's, it was the intimate name. It was the name for people God was entering into a deep relationship with. This was the holiest possible word. This, this was the highest expression of divine self-reference. And Jesus does not here simply take it on his lips. He takes it on himself. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And with this dramatic phrase, Jesus told them that he was the eternal God, existing not only during the time of Abraham, but in eternity past. And this is the clearest, most straightforward claim in this gospel, that, that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I Am of Exodus 3 and the prophets. And if Jesus only wanted to claim pre-existence, he could have said before Abraham was, I was. But he meant to say more than mere pre-existence. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews immediately knew what Jesus was saying. Even as dull of hearing and understanding as they were, they understood that Jesus was claiming to be the eternal God as boldly and emphatically as it could be done. Well, how do the Jews respond to this? Well, wouldn't it be incredible if we could read, and they fell to their knees, and they cried out to him in faith and repentance. But that's not what we read. Instead, we read in verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew Jesus was claiming to be God, the great I Am, but they didn't believe him. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. But in reality, they were the blasphemers, cursing and, and attacking the God they claimed to serve. I mean, they were unwilling to accept the fact that the Messiah was standing right in front of them. But their attitude was, we will not have Jesus to reign over us. We will not have this man rule over us. 
And that is basically why uh, people today are not believers. They do not want to submit their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. They will not have him ruling over them. They want to do it their way, when they want, how they want, whenever they want, but yet they want heaven in the end. There's simmering hatred flamed into mob violence, and they took the law into their own hands, picked up stones to stone Jesus on the very spot, but the verse says Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so with regard to what Jesus said about himself, in these two passages, our Lord declared he was the Messiah and that he was I am, the eternal God. And again, he could not have been more clear. But this is not all that Jesus had to say about himself. Now, there are seven I am, or seven metaphorical I am statements in the Gospel of John, which further our understanding of Jesus and his ministry in the world. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at these I am statements. So turn now to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, you know the story. Jesus fed the multitude with five barley loaves and two fish, and the crowd ate until they were filled. The word means glutted, so they, I mean, they were just stuffed. The next day, the crowd came seeking Jesus. They found him on the other side of the lake, but the Lord knew that they only came because they had eaten their fill of bread the day before. And so Jesus took this opportunity to teach them spiritual truth using bread as a metaphor for himself. And he said to them in John 6, 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. And then a few verses later, he said to them, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he said in verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. But they didn't understand what Jesus was saying at all. Because they were thinking in terms of, of literal bread. They thought Jesus was offering them some kind of never-ending supply of literal bread, so they quickly asked for more. Sir, they said, give us this bread always. Man, you're giving away bread for life. Hey, we want that. Give us this bread always. They didn't grasp the truth that Jesus was speaking about himself. He, he was offering himself to them. He was the bread of God who came down to give life to the world. But they missed the point entirely because they just wanted more free bread to eat. And so in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. doesn't get much clearer than that. Jesus wants them to know he's not giving away free bread. He said, I am the bread of life. 
And as we said, I am is the Old Testament name of God. It speaks of God as the self-existent one who is and was and is to come. And so here again, when Jesus used the name I am for himself, he's definitely claiming to be God. I am, Jesus said, the bread of life. And bread of life means bread which provides life. And as it does throughout John's Gospel, the Greek word translated here, life, does not refer to physical and temporal life, but rather to the spiritual and eternal life that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so the Father's provision for a dying world was to send from heaven His only begotten Son, the bread of life, who gives life, spiritual and eternal life to the world. And the crowd had falsely concluded that Jesus merely gives people literal bread, but in reality, he's the bread. They had asked to see a sign. Jesus told them, he is the sign. They asked for bread. Jesus offered them himself. He said, I am the bread of life. And you know, we take, we take bread for granted. We want bread, we just run down to the store and buy as many loaves as we want. I mean, we take it for granted. But in Jesus' day, bread was essential. It was a staple of life, and if you didn't have it, you went hungry and, and even died. And by saying, I am the bread of life, Jesus was claiming to be the one men and women could not do without. He is the bread from which eternal life is derived. He, he is the one who gives spiritual and eternal life to man and then sustains that life within them. And then men and women that Jesus was speaking to were in need of eternal life, just as there are people in this room this morning that are in need of eternal life. The people were in need of eternal life. They, they were alive physically, but they were not alive spiritually. I mean, you could say they were the walking dead, and I don't mean zombies like the television show. They were the walking dead. And I say that because they were alive physically, and yet they were dead spiritually. But Jesus had come to give them life, eternal life, abundant life, life that satisfies the deepest spiritual longings of their souls. He had come to give them himself. I mean, without him, they would remain dead spiritually. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who can give you life and satisfy your soul. And then he said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now obviously Jesus uh, was not speaking about physical hunger and thirst. Rather, he is speaking about spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. And he said, whoever comes to him will have his spiritual hunger satisfied, and whoever believes in him will have his spiritual thirst satisfied. And we see here that believing in Jesus is defined as coming to Him. That is, coming as one who has nothing but sin and needs absolutely everything. 
You know, trusting completely in Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God, acknowledging that salvation comes through faith in Him alone. And the man or woman who comes to Jesus with a believing heart will receive spiritual satisfaction and peace for their souls. And listen, Jesus is the only one who can provide true soul satisfaction both in this life and throughout eternity. You know, Jesus said that the result of believing in him is that we shall not hunger and never thirst. Now, obviously, this does, not, this does not mean that we will never long to know more and more of Jesus. I mean, we will. If we're a believer, we will. Rather, what this means is that when we truly believe in Him, we're satisfied with Him. There, there's a contentment. There's, there's a satisfaction. Why? Well, because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Colossians 2 says that we are, are filled in Him or, or complete in Him. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, loved ones, this is the heart of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has come to Jesus looking for life. Because they've come to understand that, that they don't have life. And that Jesus is offering life. And so they come to Christ. Because it's the Lord Jesus, the one who died and rose again. It is in Him alone that God provides life for the world. There's life in no one else. He has come down from heaven to give life, eternal life, to the world. And so I want to ask you all a very simple question. Have you ever come to Jesus just as you are? I don't mean have you ever prayed a prayer or signed a card. That may not mean one thing. And in many, many cases today, it doesn't mean one thing other than except you got worked up emotionally, did what they told you to do. I'm asking, have you ever come to Christ just as you are because you have come to realize how sinful you are? And that one day you're going to stand before this same Jesus and give an account of your life. And in that moment, nothing is going to matter except if you have a relationship with Him. That's all that will matter. It won't matter what your accomplishments are. It won't matter if you, uh, you know, had the greatest accomplishments in the world, won't matter one thing. Have you ever come to Jesus? Because you see, the Christian life is a relationship with a person. It's not just you know, trying to be good on the outside and going to church once in a while and trying to be moral on the outside. Unbelievers do that all the time. Those things don't make you a Christian. 
The Christian life is a real living relationship with the person. Coming to Jesus is believing in Him. It is receiving Him. It's trusting in Him. It's it's resting in Him. It is laying the weight of all that you are on the mercy and grace and love of all that He is. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. If you have a restless soul, it's because you can only find rest for your souls in one place, and that is in Jesus Christ. But as long as you remain self-focused and self-satisfied, as long as you remain content in your sin, you will never come to Jesus. You will never come to Jesus until you know and feel the weight of your sin and your need of the Savior, the bread of life. And this is why God will come and disrupt our lives and unsettle our hearts. You know, to bring us to the place where we understand with our minds confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that we do not have life, that sin has robbed us of life, and that we desperately need life, and the life that can, the life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. I mean, when you see and, and feel your desperate need of Jesus, you'll come to Him and nobody's going to keep you from Him. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's the bread of life. Now from John 6, let's go over to John 8. For the second I am saying of Jesus, which comes right before he heals a man that was born blind. And here in John 8, And you will have noticed in John 4 and John 6, you'll notice again in John 8, we're not doing every single verse. And this is more of just a a kind of an overview. I mean, we're just hitting the points about what Jesus said he was or is. So in John 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And the day after the feast was over, Jesus went to the temple and we're told that all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. But as he taught them, he was interrupted by a group of scribes and Pharisees who brought to him a woman who had been caught in adultery. And this they did to test Jesus, to see if they could find something to charge him with. They wanted to find a, a charge to bring against him. And if they would have been sincere about this, they would have also brought the man. Because both were guilty under the law, but they only brought the woman because they were trying to trap Jesus. And we're told that when they brought the woman to Jesus, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. But he didn't leave it at that. He said, Go, and from now on, sin no more. And then after dealing with the Jews, and then graciously dealing with the woman, Jesus resumed his teaching of the people. If you look at verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And light is one of the three things which God is said to be. In John 4.24, we are told God is spirit. In 1 John 1.5, we're told that God is light. And in 1 John 4.8, we are told that God is love. And these expressions relate to the very nature of God, what, what he is in himself. And so when Jesus affirmed, I am the light of the world, using that Old Testament covenant name of God, I am for himself, He's clearly proclaiming his absolute deity and to be Israel's Messiah. You know, believers are said to be light in the Lord, but, is, but Christ himself is the light. He says, I am the light of the world. He is the light, not a light or another light among many lights. No, he said, I am the light. And you'll notice that he did not say, I am the light of Jerusalem or the light of Judah, or even the light of Israel. He didn't say, I am the light of America. No, he said, I am the light. I am the light of the world. And in claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus defined himself as the one true light for all people. Not just, not just the Jews but for everyone without distinction, Jew and Gentile alike. He is the only light. He is the true light for the world. But what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the light of the world? What does he mean by that? Well, at least three things. First of all, he meant, I'm the promised Messiah. You know, and Jesus may have had the words of Isaiah the prophet in mind when he said this. Because in a prophecy about the Messiah, Isaiah 9.2 predicts, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, and then again in Isaiah 49, verse 6, the Lord God tells his servant, the Messiah, this in Isaiah 42.6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And then in Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so God the Father says the Messiah will be the light of the nations. 
And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's claiming to be the prophesied Messiah. He's, he's saying, I am the pro promised one that the prophets spoke of and have been pointing forward to. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one the Father set apart to be the light for the nations. I've come. Maybe not as you've expected me to come, but I've come. And then secondly, in saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying that he is God incarnate, come to reveal God to man. I mean, throughout scriptures, it is Yahweh, the sovereign God, who is described as light. The psalmist said, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Micah 7.8, the prophet said, the Lord will be a light to me. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20, God says to his people, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And this is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, where instead of the sun and the moon, the nations have the Lamb the Lamb as their lamp, and that Lamb is identified as the Lord God. 1 John 1.5 tells us, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. In other words, God is, uh, God is, God's, uh, other words, God is absolutely pure and holy. And Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is a claim to be God in human flesh and, and even more. But as we learned in the first chapter of John's Gospel, speaking of Jesus, John said that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Verse 9, John spoke of Jesus as the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then the final verse in his prologue, verse 18, we looked at it last week. John said, no one has ever seen God, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so what John is telling us is what, what Jesus, and what Jesus is claiming is that he is the true light who's come into the world. There's no one else beside him. He is that light. It's only in and through him that God's glorious attributes shine forth brilliantly in the midst of the world. He is the one on whom the glory of God is revealed, full of grace and truth. He is the true light, the genuine and ultimate self-revelation of God to man. And a little bit later, in the Gospel of John, Philip, one of the disciples, will say to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. But Jesus said, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, everything the Father is, Jesus says, I am. And then thirdly, in saying that I am the light of the world, Jesus is also saying that he brings the light of truth into the darkness of this sinful world. When Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world, first of all, his words imply that the world needs light and is naturally in a dark condition. And it most certainly is. The world is in moral and spiritual darkness. I mean, the darkness of fallenness and sin and corruption, and it has been since the very beginning. The world, which is Satan's realm, which, which all men are a part of, is called in Scripture the domain of darkness. The devil is the prince of darkness. This world is the kingdom or domain of darkness. And the metaphor of darkness is also used for the disastrous reality of the human condition apart from God. 
And the natural man is in spiritual darkness. If you're unsaved sitting here this morning, you're in natural darkness. Your heart is darkened because you're spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, men and women, unbelieving men and women are in darkness. Their minds are darkened. They're spiritually dead and blind and cannot see. And so they have no interest in the things of God. I mean, unbelievers are characterized in Ephesians 5.11 as doing unfruitful works of darkness, of walking in darkness. The way of the wicked is darkness, the Scripture says. The foolish heart is darkened. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Apart from God, the human condition is one of abject darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of ignorance, the ignorance of God. And this is man's default condition. He is ignorant of God as he truly is, and he is also ignorant of himself as he truly is. He doesn't know God as he is, and he doesn't even know himself as he is. Their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. And so men just stumble along, plunging deeper and deeper into the darkness of sin, the darkness of ignorance, and ultimately the darkness of death. As Jesus says in John 12, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. They're just stumbling along through life. Little do they know they're headed uh, for judgment. That's what they're headed for. And man in this condition is without hope in the world. He's just stumbling along toward death and eternal wrath and the judgment of God. And it's coming. As sure as I am standing here speaking to you, it's coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. But as John said, and here's the good news, the light shines in the darkness. That's back in 1.5. The light shines in the darkness. So into this sin-darkened world, Jesus came as the light of the world. The light that shines in the darkness, the true light, and the light of truth that dispels the darkness of sin and ignorance and death. I mean, Jesus, as the light of the world, came to make God known to this broken, sinful world. He came to reveal the true God to us. He came to shine the light of God's truth into the darkness of this world so that we could see ourselves as God sees us. He came to bring the light of the gospel and love to shine into our hearts. And, and, and that's painful at first as the light exposes our, our, all the ugliness of our sin and we begin to see how sinful and, and shameful and wicked sin really is and that, that our sin is against God first and foremost and that we stand condemned before Him. But He doesn't leave us there. He comes so mercifully and graciously and says, I don't condemn you. Your sins are forgiven. Go and and sin no more. You see, it is in light of the incredible encounter with the woman caught in adultery that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
That's not some kind of philosophical statement about himself. He's saying to the people around him and to anyone who had ears to hear, do you, do you see what I, by my grace, have done for that woman? And I can do that for any man or woman, whatever darkness they're in. If they will just humble themselves and fall on their knees before him and ask, them to, and ask God to save them. He can save anyone, no matter what darkness they're in. You know, whatever darkness you're in this morning. I mean, maybe you're here with a heavy heart because the darkness of sin has overwhelmed you. Or maybe because you've been caught in some sin. Well, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what hope there is in this. Because light comes not only to dispel darkness, it comes to give a new heart and a new life and a new beginning and, and fresh hope to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And then he makes an incredible promise in the rest of verse 12. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever follows me, he says. And the word follows conveys the idea of someone who gives himself completely to the person followed. So there's no half-hearted followers. Those don't exist in Jesus' mind. You're a follower, you're following him all the way, completely. And so whoever follows him, whoever commits himself or herself unreservedly to Christ as his only Lord and Savior, you know, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your background, color, nationality, culture, whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, whoever is actually following Jesus will not walk in darkness. But, he says, will have what? The light of life. The light of life. The life he shares with those who follow him gives them light, spiritual divine light, which is something possessed only by those who follow Christ. Because we are dead and blind to the light until the life of Jesus is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit, and then we see the eyes of our hearts are opened and divine light streams into our living spirits, and thus we, we have the light of life, the, the life that comes from new spiritual eye-opening life, eternal life. And the good news is, is that this light will never go out. Never. And so this means that in the moment of death, when the world thinks all the lights go out, well, that's not true for the believer, because for the believers, the lights are just going to continue. Only, now, only then, at death, it will be the light of heaven, a glorious light, an eternal light. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to know the light of God, if you want to know the light of life that dispels darkness and brings forgiveness and hope and peace and future glory into your life, you must follow me. You must follow me. Listen, folks, there, there's no getting to heaven apart from following Christ. 
Heaven is not man's default destination. Eternal hell is man's default destination. Only those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation are going to enter into the gates of heaven. You know, those who possess the light of life, God's free forgiveness, the knowledge of his love, the the fellowship of God, membership in the family of God, the hope of the glory of God, are only those who actually follow him. It's only for those who believe in him. And so let me ask you another question this morning. Are you following Jesus? Are you following him? Listen, Jesus did not come to give us a philosophy of life. He came to give us himself. And so the question is, are you following him? Are you following him? And if you are, will you follow him wherever he goes? Are you resolved by God's grace to follow him no matter how costly it may be? Because there could come a point in time where it might cost you everything. Are you resolved by God's grace to follow him no matter how costly it may be? Are you resolved to grow in your knowledge of Jesus that you may know him more, more deeply, more intimately, so that you'll love him more and more and more and more? And these are things to ponder, things to think about, things to meditate upon. Because again, as as surely as I said this morning, we will all stand one day before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of our lives. And it won't matter in that moment uh, what you accomplished, you know, what you... uh, what wasn't, it won't matter what wasn't done for you. It won't matter what your parents did or didn't do to you. The only, you're going to stand there in front of Christ alone and give an account of your life. And you won't be able in that moment to blame anyone else. You will answer for your actions. You know... My wife has one of those mirrors, as I'm assuming many of you ladies do, those magnifying mirrors. You know, you put makeup on. Those things are frightening, aren't they? You know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, the, the closer you look, I mean, it shows all the flaws, all the faults, right? I mean, that's what it's designed for. <laughs> well, the closer you get to anyone, the more you see that their faults and, and their flaws. And so, you know, the closer I get to you or the closer you get to me, you're going to see my faults, my flaws. Uh, because I'm human just like everyone else. But the point is, the closer you get to anyone, the more you see their flaws. However, it's not that way with Jesus. Because the closer we draw to Him, the more we know of Him, 
the more glorious and beautiful and lovely He appears to us. Because there is nothing unwonderful or unbecoming in Jesus. And so the longer we pursue Him, and the deeper and more intimately we know Him, we will only ever discover more beauty and more perfection and more loveliness. And so for eternity, eternity, we'll never run out of greatness to discover in our infinite Savior and God. You see, heaven is... Um, Heaven is not us like being fat little cherubs floating around on clouds, stroking a, a, a harp all the time. That would be so boring. Heaven is not going to be boring. Heaven is going to be, I mean, it's more wonderful than we can even begin to comprehend. And what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there. And we are going to spend eternity with him, discovering more and more about him. Heaven's going to be one, uh, an eternity of discovering new things about Christ. And we will never run out of majesty to be freshly amazed by. We'll never run out of goodness to enjoy. So let me ask you, do you, do you want to learn more about Jesus this year? I mean, do you, do you want to increase your faith and love for the Lord? And if you answered no, I would be very concerned. Because if you have no interest in knowing Jesus more, and getting to know Him more, and increasing your faith and your love for Him, then it's probably because you're not a believer, and you have no interest in Jesus. And I wouldn't expect you to until He gives you a new heart. And so what do we do? If we want to learn more about Jesus this year, if we want to increase our faith and our love for Him, well, we start by pursuing Him. We pursue Him. We pursue Him as simply and as imperfectly as we can. And that means opening your Bible to learn. It means opening your mouth in prayer. It means being faithful to sit under the preaching of His Word in corporate worship and then just pursue our great and glorious God and Savior. And the thing is, He isn't far off. And He loves to reveal Himself to weak sinners like us because He is full of grace. He is full of grace. Isn't that wonderful? Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. We've looked at if you've been blessed by today's today, message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love I to hear from Father, you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see